Hi, everyone. I hope you're all having a great day, and I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season. Welcome to Episode 3 of Computer Crime Chronicles, where we focus on what's happening in the world of computer forensics and incident response. For those just joining for the first time, we like to do an interview in every episode with either a law enforcement officer or private sector examiner, where they share an interesting case they worked. This week is no different, as we'll be talking to Gene Schantz, a former police officer and computer forensic analyst. I've been friends with Gene for about nine years. He's a great conversationalist, and he's very knowledgeable on computer forensic topics, so stay tuned. But first, let's talk about some news. In 2021, Apple rolled out a new line of processors called the M1 chip. These chips offered vast improvement in both speed and processing power over the existing Intel processors, and they have been entirely developed by Apple. Now the Cupertino juggernaut is coming out with the M1 Pro and M1 Max processors, with even greater enhancements to speed and processing power. However, the benefits of these changes come with a few drawbacks. Chief among them is the inability to dual-boot your Mac computer with the Mac and Windows operating systems. This was a major benefit because users didn't have to purchase two computers. Additionally, when major architecture changes are made to computers, the methods used for creating forensic images and accessing data on these systems may no longer work. The companies that provide those solutions need time to adapt. Recently, at least for normal users, the dual boot issue has been solved. Kind of. The virtualization software Parallels has been updated to support running Windows 10 and Windows 11 on the M1 Pro and M1 Max configured computers. That being said, running forensic software in a virtualized system can be challenging. Driver issues, graphics issues, and other compatibility issues are not unusual. Within time, these issues will be solved, but they can't come fast enough for the army of digital forensicators fighting crime and protecting private sector companies. Jacob Matthew Medina, 29 years old, of Glendale, Arizona, pleaded guilty in 2021 to conspiring to possess fentanyl and heroin with intent to distribute in connection with an Internet-based drug trafficking operation. In November 2018, the United States Postal Inspection Service began an investigation of darknet vendor Ghost831, who advertised heroin, methamphetamine, and oxycodone for sale on the Internet. On March 4, 2019, after identifying drug packages mailed by the vendor, investigators executed a federal search warrant at Medina's residence in Glendale. Medina admitted that he had $31,000 in cash, a firearm, customer lists, package tracking numbers, 502 grams of counterfeit M30 pills containing fentanyl, and over a pound of heroin in his residence. One of the customers on the list suffered a fatal drug overdose. On January 4, 2022, Medina was sentenced by U.S. District Judge Douglas Rays to 160 months in federal prison. A Lufkin, Texas man has been sentenced to federal prison for child pornography violations in the Eastern District of Texas. Colby Allen, 20 years old, pleaded guilty in late 2021 to distributing child pornography. According to information presented in court, on February 20, 2020, an undercover law enforcement officer accessed an instant messaging chat group known to have users who posted images and videos of child pornography. The officer observed that a particular user posted two videos to the group, including a video depicting the sexual abuse of a minor. Further investigation revealed that the user of the messenger account was Allen. On November 19, 2020, Law enforcement officers executed search warrants at Allen's residences in Lufkin and Beaumont. During the search of Allen's Beaumont residence, officers seized his cellular telephone, which was later forensically imaged. 
Our review of the forensic image revealed numerous video and image files depicting child pornography. The images and videos located on Alan's phone included the two videos uploaded to the instant messaging group on February 20, 2020. Allen was sentenced to 162 months in federal prison by U.S. District Judge Thad Hartfield on January 6, 2022. And that's it for the news. For our interview today, we're going to be talking to Gene Schantz. Gene is the director of DFIR at Strauss Freeburg and is also a virtual team leader. In addition to supervising a team of forensic analysts, he is a primary technical lead for larger DFIR engagements. Mr. Schantz prepares executive-level briefings of forensic findings and provides strategic support for remediation and recovery operations. Mr. Schantz began his computer forensic career as a detective with the Flagstaff, Arizona Police Department, where he conducted forensic analysis on all forms of digital media. He has testified as an expert witness in cases involving computer forensic components as well. He is an instructor for the International Association of Computer Investigative Specialists, also known as IASIS, a worldwide training organization, and he has served on the board of directors for approximately nine years, serving as director of communications, vice president, and is currently the president of the board and has been for the last four years. Mr. Schantz also conducted incident response investigations for IBM Emergency Response Services and Dell SecureWorks. Gene, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. Gene, you've got a really good story that you and I have talked about over the years that I thought the audience would really like. It has to do with manually, not automatically with some tool, but manually rebuilding a partition. Is that right? That's correct. Great. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, how that happened and the kind of the case that got you into to doing that? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you did it. Sure. I was working for IBM at the time, and there was a company that was hit with the Shamoon 2 destructive malware. And for those that aren't familiar with the Shamoon 2 malware, it was a malware used by political operatives to make a statement and to try to destroy their enemy, so to speak. And what it would do is when it would run on a computer system, it would run and destroy the first 2,500 sectors of every volume on the disk that it was running on. What was interesting about this particular piece of malware is when somebody that was not a forensic analyst would look at it, they would say, oh, it's just, it's encrypting all that data. But in fact, it actually was overwriting all that data with a repeat of a JPEG image of a little Syrian boy that had washed up on a beach in the Middle East. And when you carve that out, you could see that picture really clear. But what happened because of that, and because it overwrote that data, all that data was lost from the beginning. The Windows operating system or any other application could not identify the partitions. When you would load the system up into a forensic software, the volume boot, because it hit each individual partition, the volume boot record and the master boot records were all lost. So I had to come up with a mechanism to try to recover the data to where we actually had metadata. I mean, we could carve for data on the disks, but when you carve for data, you don't have the metadata associated with the files you're recovering. So let me understand what you said so far and just kind of hopefully maybe encapsulate a little bit for the audience as well. You got a virus that's not encrypting things, which is very common today. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The encryption's big today. We're, we're, we both see that a lot in, in the companies we work for and stuff. But this was actually just using a picture and overriding the first 2,500 sectors with a piece of that JPEG or the entire JPEG, right? It was, yeah, it was the entire JPEG. And when I say 2,500 sectors, I say 
it was approximately 2,500 sectors because I think what would happen would be when the when the malware would execute on the system, it would just continue to overwrite until the disk aired out. And it usually was somewhere between 23 and 2,500 sectors of each volume. Interesting. So it wasn't just overwriting the allocated files. It actually overwrote that volume boot record. Yes, it was down at the disk, very much at the disk level of execution. Okay, please continue. This is a, a little bit of a technical conversation. And just to kind of lay the groundwork for what, what we're going to be talking about, in order to understand the details of this, you need to understand a little bit about disk structures when it comes to how data is written to a disk. And so in layman's terms, the master boot record, commonly referred to as the MBR, it is a 512-byte section of code that's in the very first sector of the physical disk. And what that code does is it describes what volumes are on the disk and which one is the boot disk, or which one is the boot volume, I should say. And then it also defines the four primary partitions that are there. So this is like the big cardboard box with the label that says, these are the four boxes that are in this box, and this is where they live. And then the volume boot record, similar to the master boot record, defines the contents of each volume. So the volume is formatted with a particular file system, whether it's FAT, NTFS, uh, or other. And in, in this case, what we're going to be talking about today is NTFS file system. And so the volume boot record contains the format of the file system, the size of the volume, and the location of the volume, and in this case, the location of the MFT. Okay, so for people who are non-computer savvy, you're basically talking, if they were looking at their computer screen in Windows Explorer and looking at the files there, they would see a partition would be equal to like the C drive or maybe a C, a D, an E, and an F drive. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. I mean, if you were at a computer now and you open up your Windows Explorer and you see your local disk C drive, that is a volume that's defined by the volume boot record or the VBR. If you were to go in to look at it in disk mode, you would see the full physical disk, which that's what the MBR defines as the physical disk. And it is the beginning of the physical disk, including the MBR and the volume, the first volume. And then each volume after that, approximately 2,500 sectors have been destroyed and overwritten with this JPEG image of this little Syrian child that was killed in whatever circumstance it was. Okay, so so the overwriting was not overwriting the entire computer, just the first 2,500 sectors, right? So there was data out there. That's correct. What's interesting about the NTFS file system is the master file table, which is basically a file about every file on the disk, a continuous running file that lists every file on the disk. Well, the primary MFT record, which contains all that data, doesn't reside at the beginning of the disk. For whatever reason, in their infinite wisdom, Microsoft put it in the middle of the NTFS volume as a means to protect it from such a, an event like this. So the MFT record, if it's a large volume, 100 gigs or more, is going to reside somewhere in that 40 to 50 gig range down in the middle of the volume. So some of your file system files associated with the TFS file system may be damaged or destroyed. If I can point forensic tools to the master file table, I may be able to recover a good significant amount of data. I'm not going to be able to recover it so it's bootable, but I will be able to recover some data with metadata. 
Okay, so what you're saying is that the MFT has has all the attributes to the actual files themselves. So it knows that when they were created, the file name, where it starts, where it ends, all the clusters that belong to it. That's in the MFT. Yes, the MFT is the metadata about the file. It's the file size, it's the file name, and then it even tells the operating system where to find the contents of the file. So then the contents of the file reside somewhere else on disk, but that MFT record is what contains the metadata about that file. When was it created? What was the user account that created it, etc.? What what I ended up doing, I this was this started off as a proof of concept because the company that was impacted had about 30 some odd thousand servers that were completely destroyed. And they had told us initially they had no backups and they were in a desperate way to try to recover data. And it started off as a proof of concept. And I told my boss, I said, I have an idea. I think I can do something with this. And this all stems from my training with IASIS because we went into disk structures and volume boot records and master boot records and hex editing in very much detail. So this was just a matter of me taking my training and putting together outside the box thinking to make it work. So when a volume gets created on a disk, a partition table gets written into the master boot record. The volume boot record gets written to the zero sector of the new volume. But then at the very last sector of the volume, a copy of the volume boot record gets written. Well, because only 2,500 sectors was being destroyed, the backup volume was not damaged. And so what I found out I could do was I could search the physical disk, search the bit level for the header of the volume boot record. And what was interesting with this is when I first did this, I got all kinds of hits, which was really strange because you would think, well, wait, there should only be a couple hits because there's only a couple volumes on these disks. Well, then it dawned on me, this was a virtual environment and they were running a version of vSphere and took me a long time to figure this one out, but they, because they were running a, an older version of vSphere, vSphere did not clean the disk when they would delete a volume to create a new machine. So in the unallocated space on the actual data store resided all kinds of volume boot records that I had to weed through. So then I had to start searching for volume boot records that started at, at a sector beginning for this disk. And then I had to start matching volume serial numbers up with what I could find in the, in the environment. So eventually I got it down to where I, I was able to filter through that stuff fairly quickly. And I would go to the very back end of the disk and I would find the very last volume boot record. And then using a tool that's actually put out by Darren Freestone, it's a lock and code tool that, that breaks down all the bytes, all the, the bytes and offsets within the volume boot record, I was able to actually take that volume boot record and calculate the size of it backwards back up the disk. And then I was able to do an assurance test because it started at the beginning of the volume. The very next sector should be the last volume or the backup volume of the volume in front of it. So I could do a sanity check on my math and make sure it was good. And then I used a simple hex editor and I copied the 512 bytes of the backup volume boot record and just overwrote where it needed to go at the very zero sector of that disk. So I would repeat this process. And when I was done, if my last volume boot record was being written to the offset at 2048, I knew I had a viable reconstruction of that disk. Okay, first I'll ask if you were working off of a copy of the original, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So they would take and extract out the 
the VMDK file from their ESXi environment and they provided it to us. And of course, if you're not familiar with uh, VMware, the VMDK file is basically a raw disk. It's raw data in a file format. So I was actually able to take a copy of that, create a new copy and run my proof of concept on the copy so the data was always preserved. And what software did you use to actually take that uh, backup volume boot record from volume slack basically and rewrite that into the spot of 2048 where the original one was what what tool did you use i used a tool called winhex it's a, a disk editor uh, put out by uh, xways forensics and uh, it's good because i can sweep large sets of data bytes and copy them over uh, there's other forensic tools out there guidance software has a volume recovery tool and so on but those are looking for the starting volume boot sector not the ending volume boot sector so it didn't it didn't work in this case so by doing it the way i did it i was able to rebuild the disk manually backwards and and i wanted to just clarify too that uh when the last volume boot record was written to the the 2048 offset i i knew i was probably on track with my calculations everything seemed to be coming back good but then i could also go back into the volume boot record and calculate the offset to the master file table and follow that offset. And if that offset drove me back down to the location of the true MFT record that was there, I knew I had recoverable data. So I was then able to take that disk in that format with just the volume boot records restored and bring it into my forensic tool, which I, at that time I was using X-Ways, and we were able to actually find a good chunk of data. There was data that was damaged and destroyed, but I was able to find a good chunk of data and the metadata associated with that data. The problem we ran into is they didn't have any mechanism to do that themselves when they were trying to recover data. So what we were trying to do was come up with a method to make that disk readable to Windows so that they could attach that volume to another VMDK system or to another virtual system and then see the data that was there and copy off what was viable. And so I thought, all right, well, if Windows can write a master boot record, why can't I? So I started looking at two different volume boot records, one from a legitimate disk, which happened to be my personal drive, and then one, uh, one that I was uh, looking at from other evidence. And all the data is the same. The first like 400 some odd bytes is, is the same. It's the same jump code uh, telling the computer where to look for a boot record. The only thing that really needs to change is the volume partitions that are the partition table. And one of the interesting things that I've learned about, and for those that are not familiar with CHS, CHS is cylinder head sector, which is very legacy windows very legacy windows, but there is data written into those by Windows when it creates a master partition table. Well, it's an extremely complicated process to do the math on vol uh, uh, cylinder head sector uh, with everything now being logical block. And I thought, well, shoot, I'm just going to try it without. And it, it worked. It, it's so legacy, Windows doesn't even need it. So I just left those sections of the primary partition table zeroed out, and I just went in and edited the hex in you know, having to do little Indian and, and work the math out and make sure it was all done. And when I was done, I, w I was able to plug that disk in and mount it in a VM and it, it was readable. And I was like, I can't believe this worked. And the first one <laughs> took me, the first time I did it, it took me probably eight to 10 hours of troubleshooting. Of course, I had the, the issue with the multiple volume boot records on the disk and it took me a while to figure that one out. But once I got it figured out, 
the analyst that was working the case would just start sending me the discs that he wanted to examine for his DFIR investigation. And I got to a point where I was able to recover those discs and, and put them back together in about 30 minutes time by just having the process down pat. And then I would get the recovered disc and I would send it off to him and he would do his analysis on what he could find. And we were able to recover Windows event logs. I mean, we, we recovered a, a ton of data that allowed us to do that. And um, ultimately, I don't know what, I don't recall what happened. I thought we were gonna have to try to redo this for 30 some odd thousand systems because they were trying, they reportedly had no backups, but apparently the company either found they had backups or had backups on tape and they went that route. So we didn't have to do that for all 30 some odd thousand systems, but it was a pretty cool proof of concept. And it's, uh, it's one I've, uh, I've been getting some uh, mileage on. I like to tell this story to people that, that come to IASIS for training because we teach disk level forensics in, in a way that n no one else does. And it's this kind of training that gave me the skill set to be able to even consider this as an option. So let's go into that right now. You and I have belonged to IASIS me for 22 years, 23 years, something like that. And you've been on roughly half that, I think. But we didn't just go there and, and get our certification, which was very difficult at the time and still is today. But I really wanted to touch base on uh, on what you learned there. And specifically, uh, during your talk here, you talked about doing the math. And you were talking about the math involved inside that volume boot record. And it's not just like you can get in there and it's one plus two equals three. Can you go a little bit more about what you're talking about and what, what math you did and where you learned that specifically? Yeah, that's, that's actually a, a good thing. I'm happy to discuss this because what, one of the first classes you get in IASIS on day one is basically numbering systems. And numbering system teaches you binary. Uh, binary is ones and zeros, which, it, which is the makeup of all digital data is ones and zeros. And then of course, you have to turn binary into what's called hexadecimal, which can then be applied to either ASCII text or Unicode text, or some mechanism for the operating system and processor to read the binary that's on the disk. And so those are the first classes you get is to understand binary, understand eight bit represents one byte, four bits represent a nibble, understanding big Indian versus little Indian, which is a processor issue from back in the day when, when you, had, uh, you had the difference between Motorola and, and um, on Intel that would read the data a different way. And it just has to do with the most significant bit being on the right or on the left. So th that is actually one of the main foundations that you get taught right out of the gate. And then after that, they go into disk structures. And it's really important because as a criminal investigator, we're doing a lot of data on disk. We're looking at data that resides on disk. It might be deleted data. It might be data that the user thought they deleted and, and got rid of and it's never recoverable again. But if you don't understand how data is written to disk and what it looks like on disk, if you were to carve against a disk that's been formatted and you find data, being able to explain what that data represents and why it's there is extremely important. A great little side story from, from my days in law enforcement. We had an individual who uh, brutally raped his stepdaughter and took photographs of the rape using a dive camera. And he thought he was smart after he told her not to tell anybody, he went and reformatted the micro SD card on his dive camera. Well, I wasn't the forensic analyst that did the analysis that was done by my sergeant, Frank Higgins. However, we were able to go in and recover 20 photographs that he took 
And that man is now serving 250 some odd years in prison for his brutal crime. But so the data on the disk doesn't necessarily have to have a file system. It just has to exist there before. And it's up to us to be able to interpret that data. And so after numbering disk structures, we go into the different Windows file system. We focus primarily on Windows, FAT, FAT12, FAT16, FAT32. So you understand what you're looking at and what the nuances are between the various FATs. Then you have NTFS file system. And now over the last six or eight years, we've introduced XFAT as well, which is the newest FAT file system. And then that takes up the first three or four days of the training. And then they start getting into the registry and Windows artifacts and understanding what happens behind the scenes that the user doesn't understand is going on. So when you go and you click on a Word document and you have a little jump list there that says, oh, I was here just before and there's a, here, this is the document I was looking at and I can follow that. Well, that's actually a jump list. It's a hidden file that's created that the user doesn't know about. The only way it got created was by the user opening a document and Windows saying, oh yeah, you had this document open, do you wanna see it again? Well, in the law enforcement world, when you have to explain culpable mental state of did they knowingly click on this or open this file, this is an artifact that can help us show the user, not necessarily the suspect, but a user, this user account clicked on this file and opened it. And then of course the Windows registry has a lot of other artifacts in it, like the MRU, most recent used, there's all kinds of data in the, in the registry that happens all behind the scene. The user doesn't see this. And so even though the user might go in, and I actually had a case where this happened, the user went in and downloaded a whole bunch of uh, child exploitation and deleted it all. And we were not able to find any of it on the disk. But I was able to find Windows artifacts that showed he navigated to this based on file name. Now, it wasn't enough to convict but we knew we were at least at least sniffing up the right trail. This guy uh, was doing a bunch of naughty stuff on this computer and he managed to, to destroy things enough to prevent conviction. But, but those artifacts are there behind the scenes and are usable to the person that knows where to look. I think it's fascinating that you use that as a proof of concept and you base that off of your training that you had in IASIS. Would you say that most examiners are doing what you're talking about, that manual reconstruction to this point? Do you think that's more of an advanced feature that some examiners are doing, but we should be trying to teach more of them how to? So that's an interesting question. When I've explained this to a lot of different folks, many of who are CFCE certified through IASIS, they're blown away by it. They're like, that's just amazing. I can't believe you did it. And my response is, I got the same training you did. All I did was look at the data from a different perspective. Anybody that has received this kind of training can, can take and look at that data and follow the same concepts to do the same thing. As you know, being you know, in the incident response field now as I am, data analytics becomes a huge part of what we do. How you look at data, how you represent data, how you manipulate data to present to you what you're looking for, whether it's a histogram, uh, whether it's a pivot table in a, an Excel spreadsheet, to represent the data in a certain way. And this is very similar to that. It was that I knew what the data looked like on disk. I knew there was a backup volume boot record, and it's there for a reason. If Microsoft can use it to recover your partition, why can't I? And so I gave it a try. The proof of concept worked, and it worked well. But everybody that goes through IASIS are given the tools to do this if they think outside the box and apply the tools to the problem and not just push button forensics. That's a good point. I mean, the forensic software these days, I think you'd agree with me that 
we couldn't do our job if we didn't have the advanced software we have. I'm an end case guy. Uh, you're more of an X ways guy. Other people are into Axiom and some of the other tools that are available. And we all have these tools that allow us to do as much as we can do. If we had to do it in the old DOS days, the manual way, you know, uh, sector by sector and, and linking clusters to make a file, we'd never get anything done. So having those tools is great. But when you can take something like this and extend that use through your training that you've had by the, the disk structures, I think it's fascinating. In fact, I've done some of the same things you've done as well. Uh, I've gotten in and recovered partitions. I told a story here a couple of episodes ago where actually Becky Passmore and I worked together on something from the FBI where she was able to rebuild an entire uh, partition using an automated feature once we figured out what the suspect had done. So I do, I think it adds a tremendous amount. And even though this, this talk was not meant to be an advertisement for IASIS, uh, I certainly am a big believer by being a member as many years as I have, and you have seen the same thing of people going to that training and not just going to the two-week training but uh, going on and getting that certification that is not an easy certification to get but is worth every penny you put into it and all the time you put into it because you really know disk structures all the way down right to the root of that hard drive so I, I can't emphasize that enough but what a great story Gene that's really cool and, and I, I'm sure your client uh, was was pretty fascinated by this as well. Well, I never interfaced with a client, so I can't I can't respond to how they did. But I know that the investigator that was working it kept sending me more disks, so he he must have been quite pleased with it. So, we actually had a case here back when I worked for the Fed where we had a partial video, and I couldn't play it. But when I brought it into VLC, and we all know VLC is very forgiving, uh, I had actually played a number of videos before this one. So when I tried to load this particular video, it was, de it was deleted, overwritten. But as you know, that could mean that one byte was overwritten or the whole thing was overwritten. It just depends on what, what took the space up uh, once it was deleted. And I could actually put it in there. And VLC was so forgiving, it took some of the prior codec information from what it had played before and attached it to this one where I could actually hear uh, a little child and, and an adult voice, but I couldn't see a video. So what I did was I thought, okay, I'm just going to go out and look at the code. I looked at the code and started my way down. You can tell when code is nothing a lot of times. You can tell when there's some structure to it. This happened to be an AVI uh, video. And it got to a point of about 5,000 bytes in where the first 5,000 bytes looked crap. It didn't look like anything. But then it started looking like structure. So I went out and copied 5,000 bytes off of a good AVI, just any AVI. Some people would say, well, you probably got part of that video. No, 5,000 bytes is nothing. That's probably all just codec and, and instructions on how to view the video. And I took that 5,000 and appended it to the beginning of that other one, and I played the whole video. I got the suspect. I got the victim. I got a shirt he was wearing, and the shirt was so distinctive, we actually pulled his driver's license photo, and he was wearing the same shirt in his driver's license photo. So we know who the guy was. We were able to tell that. But that's the kind of stuff about forensics that fascinates me. So that's a great story, Mark. I, I wasn't aware of that, uh, that particular story you've got, but it's, it's that outside-the-box thinking of what you can do with data when you understand what's going on with the data. And if there was any message I would give to your viewers today or to, to your, your audience today is that steer clear of push-button forensics. Our forensic tools are good. They're awesome. Uh, and they have come so far. They do so many things. And like you said, you can't do a lot of things without them today and we depend heavily on them but don't get into such a mindset that if I can't go click the find evidence button the evidence must not be there because you're going to miss stuff I just can't stress it enough think outside the box use your forensic tools to their strengths 
and then take those forensic tools and the data you're seeing and do your own analysis. I, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, he was a junior analyst with me, and, and when we work, we, we sometimes will take and copy notes when we go do our analysis into OneNote, and I would just get a bunch of stuff copied over in there, and it wouldn't be any explanation about what the data means or why it's there. And I had to go back to the, to the, to the young guy and say, look, this is, you're an analyst. You're being paid to look at the data and interpret the data and tell me why it matters. I don't want to have to do that for you. And so look deeper, dig deeper. If there's something that's just doesn't feel right, look deeper. You know, we've had cases where a ransomware case where the client had been infected for six months. They had been owned for six months prior. And the only way we found it was one of my analysts that was working the case with me, he flagged it early. He goes, man, I got these really weird logons I can't explain that are six months ago. And they're coming from the same account that we're seeing involved in the actual deployment of the ransomware. So we had a conversation. Well, okay, can you, do we have anything concrete that we can say this is malicious activity? And the answer was no. And I said, all right, well, let's flag it and kind of put a pin in it. And we'll sit on it for a while and see if things keep pointing back to that. And as we went through our investigation, we started realizing that all those logons were originating from a same IP address that was involved. And come to find out that IP address was an Oracle database server that had been compromised with command line injection. And the only way we found it was the client had backups that were uh, within four weeks of when that occurred six months before. And we were actually able to find the command line injection where they dropped the PowerShell on it. And it was only because a young analyst, not me, by the way, but one of my colleagues, had the wherewithal to see that and say, something doesn't feel right. We need to talk about this and figure it out. And as a collective team, we were able to do that. And so think outside the box. Use your analytical brain. Use your investigative brain. Use your forensic tools to get you at the data. But then you interpret the data. You interpret what you're looking at and validate your tools. Gene, that's a great way to end this uh, interview, and I really appreciate your taking the time to come on the show today. I also know that you've got a whole suitcase full of stories. Would you be willing to come on later and share some of those? Absolutely, Mark. You know I love this stuff. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much, Gene. Take care. You bet. Well, that's it for our show today. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to leave us, send us email at computercrimechronicles at gmail.com. Y'all have a good week.